0: We're doing a ghost story, right? I think it would be great if at the end of this episode we discovered that we're ghosts too. And then our audience could be like, did you hear about Save Me From My Shelf? They're dead. They died doing what they love. You know, sort of sublimating their anxiety about existence by making crude jokes about books. Yeah. That's our afterlife. Great. (laughs) Could you imagine dying and still having fucking anxiety? Um... I feel like actually you could. Yeah, because I was that say, very much so,
1: yeah. I don't think, I'm not one of those people that's worried about death or anything. So I think if I had an afterlife, that would be a of worry.
0: You're not worried about death?
1: Not really. Counting down the days, frankly. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Save Me From My Shelf, a literature podcast where we take classic tomes off their pedestal to make you less anxious about reading them. Our jokes come from a place of love and for a specific teaching purpose. However, if you think that making fun of great literature, and maybe some mild swearing, is offensive, this might not be the podcast for you. Hello, you are listening to Save Me From My Shelf. The artful dodger over here is Daniel.
1: How could we Is that
0: a you? I had that written down as a prediction. Oh, really? Yeah, I did. So this is a quick reminder that Aston University, where Daniel and I are, uh, we are opening up a new MA English program, which is in particular quite helpful for teachers of English. So if you are a teacher in the greater Midlands area, this might be a really good program for you to investigate. Um, But all are welcome. So please do check out our MA English at Aston. So, we actually have gotten some letters recently. Now, if you have written in to us, we're only going to read one letter per episode, so the episode doesn't get overwhelmed.
1: Also, just stretch it out because we get so few.
0: So, if you have written in, we will, you know, read your letter on an upcoming episode, so do stay tuned. The letter we got recently, I found it very charming even though it did give us a bit of a bollocking about our An Inspector Calls episode because I don't think we were appreciating it quite enough. We were quite flippant and didn't particularly care for the text. So I'm just going to read excerpts from this. Hi both, as a GCSE English teacher of 30 years, I feel you have underestimated An Inspector Calls. The play, though simple, offers a great deal to pupils of all abilities. The rather simplistic plot is accessible to all, and pupils who have very little experience of literature love being able to anticipate some aspects of the plot it is also an excellent way to introduce social history to pupils. Most will not have heard of the post-war labor government or the inequalities of Edwardian England, and the simple metaphors are actually helpful for low-ability pupils who find imagery difficult. So the letter writer is absolutely right that, you know, this is a play that is useful as a sort of introductory gloss, especially for historical context. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I understand the the points about plotting and anticipation and stuff. I think I mean, that's uh, a good argument that maybe it sometimes helps for a, for a plot to be quite uh, maybe not, I don't want to say simplistic, but I could see that that could be advantageous. I think this is a, a case of the ivory tower. We've we you know we've forgotten we've forgotten what it's like down there on the uh, on the front lines of, of I, literacy.
0: I don't know necessarily that I agree with that because okay that's fine. Well, if you look at some of the other types, text- I live
1: on dialectic. <laughs>
0: If you look at some of the other texts we've done, even on this show, that are taught at the same sort of level, something like A Christmas Carol has a lot of different levels. It's incredibly dense, it's, yeah. But, but in, it has these really obvious metaphors, and it also has metaphors that are much deeper, much more nuanced patterns that people can really sink their teeth into. So it ha- it almost has something for everyone. Whereas I, I, don't, I, just, I, I still don't think An Inspector Calls is that deep.
1: Yeah. Also... Just apropos of nothing, I want to apologize for, um, trashing Michael Foot in that episode. <laughs> Plymouth Argyle's most famous fan, so sorry about that.
0: All right, well, thank you, letter writer, and please keep writing in. We value actually being pushed back on a little bit. I, I was very charmed by how graciously you worded your, uh, your disagreement. My
1: ego's thoroughly bruised.
0: Oh, but you are a little summer fruit.
1: Yeah, a meddler.
0: A meddler? It's a type of fruit? Also
1: known, also known as a dog's arse. I'm sorry? <laughs> it's a type of fruit called a meddler.
0: So Daniel, what is our text today?
1: It's the 1890s. End of a century of progress. <laughs> Steamboats, <laughs> threshing machines, telegraphy, and of course, literary realism. We all love it, don't we listeners? Thanks to the pioneering work of Austin, Dickens, Elliot, Trollope, and Hardy, English Literature is entering the 20th century, a sophisticated tool for accurately conveying recognisable spaces, social conditions, and mores. The novel today is a bit like a lab, isn't it, really? Where the key questions de nos jours can be explored. But wait. I don't know about you, but there's, I think I've noticed there's something funny going on with the instruments. Our experiments, they're picking up strange, unearthly readings language itself is a a kind of ghostly presence in the stories we tell. A spectre is haunting English literature. The spectre of modernism. Because we're doing Henry James's Turn of the Screw from 1898.
0: It goes without saying, we are going to spoil this novella for you. The content warning, this is sort of your fair dues warning. We're going to be discussing everything to do with ghosts. Um, There's some potential child molestation, general sexual abuse, potentially a suicide or an abortion gone wrong, creepy British children, which are the worst kind of creepy children, and just death you Know of all kinds. I will say uh, that this is probably the only genuinely scary text we've read apart from maybe Dracula, but I personally think this is loads scarier. Nothing
1: scarier than modernism.
0: Okay, would you like to do some background, friend?
1: Would I ever? Henry James, a late 19th and early 20th century novelist and lit- literary critic. He was an upper middle class New Yorker and he moved in kind of exalted literary circles through his life, so he kind of hobnobbed with various novelists, artists, critics throughout America and Europe. Yeah, we heard in a previous episode that he uh, fell in love with the ugly George Eliot. Um, that's in the Silas Mara episode, isn't it? Yeah, he moved to England in 1877 and he settled there permanently, becoming a naturalised citizen. So, his first novels are kind of fairly conventional late Victorian affairs. They kind of explore social issues and up across social media on either side of the Atlantic.
0: They're really easy to read, by the way. So things like Washington Square.
1: Yeah, they're just kind of like quite normal novels, aren't they? In a good way, you know. Uh... Yeah,
0: they're they're really funny. They're quite brief. They're they're not terribly dense. So I I recommend Washington Square. I really enjoyed it. I was in the play version of that. I played the glamorous cousin
1: yeah that that that's in the 1880s in the 1890s as we get to the later mid-career works like the turn of the screw 1898 and in the cage the same year there's a lot of kind of synesthesia and like linguistic abstraction and stuff so it seems like more proto-modernistic yeah
0: turn of the screw which was written in 1898 which is our text today this very easily could have been written in 1925 or something definitely um it's it's feels years ahead of its time a little bit confusing at times in that sort of early modernist way that sort of it has a very feverish ish Vibe to it, but it's nothing compared to some of James's yes. <laughs> Let's get later works. Yeah,
1: because the end of his uh, career. So in the in the twentieth century, he was just completely incomprehensible. So the big one is the Golden Bowl, which you've read, haven't you? That's in nineteen o four.
0: I had to read that for my undergrad, and it is the most convoluted, difficult novel. I enjoyed it, but every sentence has meaning on top of meaning on top of meaning.
1: Yeah. Also, avoid doing like that's the funny, funny thing with James that I've noticed that you can have so many. Subclauses and like it can be such an artistry but in a way that or not artistry articulacy in a way mm-hmm. that uh, ends up feeling counterproductive which is comes to the brings us to the famous quote from hg wells he said that late james wrote like a hippopotamus laboriously attempting to pick up a pea that had got into the corner of its cage which i think kind of sums it up almost uh that sense of like it being so grandiose and so sort of articulated that it becomes
0: unwieldy um
1: let's take a moment to talk about henry james's balls
0: i uh, you have my attention yeah
1: in the year of our lord 1861 (laughs) aged 18 henry james volunteered as a fireman one day while helping to put out a fire he recalls that he over vigorously pumped the hose
0: is that what the kids are calling it
1: i see what you're saying this is a serious thing. Don't joke about this. Mm. Yeah, he was doing something, and he d- he did himself what he calls quote a horrid, if an obscure hurt, <laughs> one extraordinarily and awkwardly intimate.
0: So, honestly, honestly, Daniel, did he did he himself to death?
1: Well, we don't know what happened. Is the important thing the intimation is that something happened to James's balls. Literary historians and biographers have you know debated the obscure hurt to no end and some people associate it with his mysterious sexuality so you know did it preclude him from having a sex life you know because that's that was the story you know he was like oh not tonight you know darling i've got an obscure hurt or the implication is that more that it was a kind of cover story for asexuality or homosexuality i think the kind of standard reading is that james, james was gay isn't it yeah but i think like we don't He was was a slippery customer, as we've talked about his writing, and also he had this ball problem, supposedly, so who knows what was going on down there. Also, I just think Obscure Hurt is an appropriate way of describing his literary style. Yeah, he wasn't a big fan of ghost stories, was he? But he nevertheless sort of found himself compelled to, to write them.
0: Contemporary critics really hated this novella. One of them wrote, quote, The Turn of the Screw is the most hopelessly evil story that we have ever read in any literature, ancient or modern. So the critics are like, there are 42,000 words in this novella, each of them existing outside the light of God. Like that's gonna make me wanna read it less? I'm in, let's go Daniel, let's do this story. So, the introductory chapter, which is not the narrative properly. We open on a spooky Christmas party? Yes, friends, it's Britain, and people here tell ghost stories at Christmas for some reason. So, this is our frame narrative, and some dude named Douglas says, There is nothing creepier than when a little kid is haunted by ghosts. So, how about a story with two kids being haunted? Huh? Does that pique your interest, you sicko? Yeah. So he says that this the story he has that he's going to tell all these Christmas guests is a real story, and he's never told it to anyone before. It's something so horrible he hasn't dared speak of it for, quote, uncanny ugliness and horror and pain. This isn't his story, though. It's a woman he used to know, a woman who's been dead these 20 years. Hmm? Um, You want a note here about the how this is set up, the frame narrative?
1: Yeah, it's a frame narrative and a kind of third-hand story.
0: Yeah, so it's actually, it's a guest at the party telling us what they heard Douglas say and Douglas recounting this other woman's story, Yeah, which she is then reporting years after the fact. Yeah, so there's so, all these
1: levels of mediation and obscurity, which is like that's that seems like very, I think that, I, I don't want to, maybe we should save this for the analysis section, but I feel like James saying he doesn't like supernatural stories but being drawn to them, I think that is a good example of how those stories lend themselves to some of his aesthetic experiments.
0: Yeah, it's very effective, that sort of that constant distance from what really happened, and we'll yeah. never really know, and that early sort of psychology. And...
1: Yeah.
0: So Daniel, take us into the story properly.
1: Yes, please. Our protagonist is an unnamed 20-year-old woman. She's the youngest daughter of a poor country parson, and therefore has to make her own way in the world. She answers an advert in the paper for a situation as a governess, and makes her way to London all alone for an interview with a rich businessman who wants her to take care of his niece and nephew.
0: Yeah, so we already have some implicit conflicts here. So she's very country mouse versus his city mouse. Uh, She's very young and he's a bit older. She's in poverty and he's very wealthy. she's a woman, he's a man, right? So she's on the back foot in every possible way. So a problem arises in this interview. Quote, this prospective patron proved a gentleman, a bachelor in the prime of life such a figure as had never risen save in the dream or an old novel before a fluttered anxious girl out of a hampshire vicarage so this guy is i mean how do i put this delicately extremely and she takes one look at him and she goes take me anywhere sailor So this bachelor uncle, he's living this young playboy life in London. He does not want to be bothered with his dead brother's kids, but he's like, okay, legally I have to take care of them. So this young woman, her assignment, should she take the job, is to go to his country house in Essex, a place called Bly Manor. You guys might know that from a recent Netflix adaptation of this book. No. Well, you wouldn't. Okay. And she needs to take care of the kids and never, ever, under any circumstances, bother him about anything. So he's basically just foisting these kids on her and he's like, you know, dust your hands off, doot, doot, you're a problem now. That's that famous Victorian empathy we've all heard so much about.
1: Yes. The young nephew, Miles, it's, it's the eighties and we say nephew here.
0: Oh, I hate that.
1: The young nephew, Miles, is at boarding school most of the year. So apart from the holidays when he's home, she just has to take care of flora the little girl there had been another governess but she died recently what a shame nothing weird going on there mm. just leave a little yeah, li- yeah leave a pin in that i think i main character she's a bit you know that that spooks her a bit she's like is this the job for me so she goes away a bit to think about it Things then turn weird.
0: Oh yeah, read it slow, Daniel. Read it slow.
1: Quote, she, our main character, was young, untried, nervous. It was a vision of serious duties and little company. of really great loneliness. She hesitated, took a couple of days to consult and consider. But the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure. And on a second interview, she faced the music she engaged.
0: Ooh, look, we all make choices in this life and... She's making some choices right now.
1: You think that they're...
0: Uh, Well, I don't think anything, because Douglas, the frame narrator, interrupts here, and he spells it out for us. Quote, The moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. She succumbed to it. She saw him only twice. There were others, presumably other applicants for the job, who hadn't succumbed. He told her frankly all his difficulty, that for several applications the conditions had been prohibitive. They were somehow simply afraid. So, this passage is so intriguing to me because she's already in love with the dude. She comes back. Douglas says he seduces her and she, quote, engaged. Um, So does it mean, like, he seduced her for the job? Mm. Does it mean he seduced her in a sexual way? Like, Douglas says, this is sexual, and then he kind of rows back and says, no, it's not. Yeah. Long story short, she agrees to take the job and maybe has sex with him, maybe not. And afterwards, he holds her hand to thank her for her, quote, sacrifice. Does that mean sacrifice of... You know going to this isolated house and taking up this kind of crappy job or the sacrifice of her virginity Mm. you know it's it's unclear and she already feels like she's been rewarded for her sacrifice because she is that in love with the guy she's like look i don't know how to explain it we had a communion of the souls during a 12-minute job interview and now i want to be buried like a dog at his feet i don't know why the human heart is garbage, and she heads off to Bly, and she never sees the hot uncle again. She might be my favorite little creep in all of literature, just endlessly trying to imprint on people like a baby duck and then feeling a lot of feelings about it. I love her. Mm.
1: <laughs> so, she's nervous about going to Bly. She's kind of worried she's made a mistake. She's filled with dread.
0: Why is it the dead governess, the promised total isolation or was it f***ing your boss the first day you started what what could make you think this is a mistake
1: um yes i think he's done that. <laughs> um she's pleasantly surprised by the big pretty house the sweet little girl she's looking after flora and the friendly housekeeper mrs grose who becomes a fast friend
0: so our unnamed governess she waxes poetic about this little girl so th- there's a lot of weird stuff about people's ages in this, especially the children, their ages seem to kind of fluctuate. Miles, the boy who's away at boarding school, he's probably about 10. And then I thought Flora was like, basically a toddler, because the governess writes that, at dinner, the little girl eats in a high chair and a bib, but we find out later that Flora is eight years old, so this is, I don't know what sort of infantilizing, creepy bullshit is it's happening. It's a status
1: thing, Ugh, come on, it's very really <laughs> simple stuff. It's a status thing, sitting in a high chair <laughs> till you're eight. Sorry. It makes you strong sitting in a high chair until you're eight, anyway. Never did me any harm.
0: The governess asks about the little boy, Miles, who's due back any day from school, and apparently he's equally good-looking and super charming. Mrs. Grose says, quote, You will be carried away by the little gentleman. The governess says, Well, that, I think, is what I came for, to be carried away. I'm afraid, however, I'll be rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London, and then... Mrs. Grose says, well, miss, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. But this is the weird subtext of this Mm. quotation. So she implies to Mrs. Grose that she was in love with the uncle, and maybe they did some sex stuff in London. She came here to be carried away, but for or by what? Like, carried away from the guy who was bad for Mm. her? Carried away by the children to fill that need for love? But she's talking about it in, like, about a 10 year old So he's kind of a stand-in for the uncle. This has all very, like, E.L. James presents Disney's Haunted Mansion.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, also just Mrs. Groves infers things from the narrator that sometimes sound wrong. Yeah. So that's also a factor to bear in mind, that not only are these... is a phrase like, I'll be carried away, or I was carried away, is ambiguous, but also the Mm -hmm. relationship between... Yeah, James is deliberately trying to confuse us, isn't he?
0: Yes, about... And it's
1: working. Before Miles arrives, the governess gets a letter from the sexy London uncle. You know, to sum it up, it says that you got a letter from Miles headmaster at school. I haven't opened the letter, you know, you deal with it, I'm off to a party.
0: I mean his whole attitude towards Miles is basically, hey boy are you a software update because I'm going to ignore you till you go away.
1: Yeah. She get, opens the letter, Miles, he's coming home for the summer holiday, you know, anyway, but he's also been asked not to return. <gasps> yeah. So something weird's been going on at that school. She and Mrs. Groves speculate why? You know, why would a school absolutely refuse to take a wealthy student back? You know, that can only mean one thing, that he's somehow an injury to the other students. But they can't believe it. I mean, the narrator hasn't met Miles yet, but she knows that he's a little dear.
0: I mean, the way they talk about him is really gross. Like, he's so precocious and charming. Yeah. He sounds like Little Lord Fauntleroy with max out stats.
1: Also, (laughs) let's have this, like, strange uh, chat. Grows and the narrator, they have a chat about Miles. They agree that they like it when kids have the spirit to be naughty, but the governess adds... But not to the
0: degree to contaminate.
1: To contaminate? said Mrs. Grows.
0: My big word left her at a loss. I explained it. To corrupt... She stared, taking my meaning in, but it produced in her an odd laugh.
1: Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? <laughs> yeah, so that's <laughs> the oh, kind of. So yeah, convain- it's very creepy. The fact that Missus Gross would even like leap to that assumption as well is yeah. There's something funny afoot? Uh, anyway, corrupt. Also, I love that all that because this this is not the first and only time that that happens. But when the governess has a vocabulary that outstrips Missus Groves and Missus Groves doesn't know what she's saying, that yeah. there's all that vocabulary stuff as well as ambiguity stuff.
0: So. Eventually, you know, things are going fine at the house, but eventually the governess, as we all would do, asks about her predecessor, Miss Jessel, the last governess who died. So she was apparently also young and pretty. He liked them that way. Who liked them though? The master? Mrs. Grose gets real quiet about all of that. Uh, of course, of course the master, Mrs. Grose says. You know, what, what other he could he be? There's no other he. <laughs> <laughs> so this is the point in the narrative where I start getting very, like, Gandalf voice, fly, you fools. Like, if we're starting at this level of creepy, I don't really know where it can go from here. But what if the old governess? Did she die here at Bly? Mrs. Grows gets real cagey again. No, no, she did, she didn't die here. She went off to a farm. <laughs> and Mrs. Grows is like, look, she went on a bit of a holiday, and when she was supposed to come back, I got word that she died. Now everybody back to work. I like to have harmony in my normal house, my very normal house.
1: Miles turns up. He is a darling. Aww. A darling who could never terrorize other boys.
0: And he's, he's just so sweet, he's like, well I'm the only man around for ages. Can I be your little king? And they go, can you ever? And yeah. they just all f***ing worship Miles. Yeah.
1: Some gross injustice has happened to him. Probably the headmaster just didn't like him. He'll stay here. They'll all be a happy family. It's all very idyllic. They have nice summer lessons and things.
0: Yeah, the governess is really determined to make this this delightful little family home. And she's like, everything will be lovely. Come on, you little shits! You get into that sunbeam like you're posing for a Dutch master. Yeah. Everything is tranquil.
1: Everything's going great, but she's still got this slight sort of frisky feeling, a little hankering for her to get, get her end away. Uh, get a leg over? She goes on evening walks every night and fantasizes about one day stumbling across a handsome man at whom she could make googly eyes.
0: So, she's going on her long, sexually pent-up walks every night, until one day she does stumble upon a man on their property. Uh, But it's not on the path like she fantasized. Oh no, there's a man up in the stone tower, which is some sort of antiquated architectural feature on the property. Can we find that phallus? But instead of being turned on by it like she was in her daydreams, she is completely unnerved by seeing this dude there. But then things start to get really confused. She thinks she kind of recognizes the man, but she doesn't know where from. They lock eyes with him looking down at her from this tower, but he doesn't say anything to her, and eventually he walks around the top of the tower and disappears. He's kind of like... You can sulk here now. I'm done." And she's like, where'd it go?
1: And her narration starts to get more obtuse and difficult to follow at this point. Here's a quote. Here it was another affair. Here, for many days after, it was a queer affair enough. There were hours from day to day, or at least there were moments snatched even from clear duties, when I had to shut myself up to think. It wasn't so much yet that I was more nervous than I could bear to be, as that I was remarkably afraid of becoming so. (laughs) That's good thing to worry about. For the truth I had now to turn over was simply included the truth that I could arrive at no account whatever of the visitor with whom I'd been so inexplicably and yet, as it seemed to me, so intimately concerned. So, yeah, we're in real hippopotamus territory there, I think. <laughs> worrying about the fear of worrying about thinking of endlessly about only sometimes thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. anyway, so she starts sort of shirking her duties and locking herself in her room to think about what she's seen. She's very preoccupied with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this chick needs like military strength cosseting. It's like someone did a summoning spell for a panic attack and she appeared. Yes,
1: exactly. What most disturbs her, and you know, brace yourself, listeners, because this is the jump scare we've all been worrying about, is that he would appear so casually on the property. He was not wearing a hat.
0: That's upsetting to me. Yeah, I know. No, the um the the real issue here, if you guys don't know the deal with Victorian hats, it's that you if you were a respectable person, you would not be seen outside the house without some sort of hat on your head. So even like ladies who go to the opera, they need some sort of like fascinator or feather or something. If your hat got blown off, you better find like a handkerchief to tie around your head. It's like that level of you will get stoned. respectability. Well, not far off, but I mean it's just that it's it's a sign of incredible familiarity, um, and incredibly low breeding to go outside without a hat on, even on your own property. But so that like there was just a wildly different cultural attitude about an uncovered head.
1: It was only when JFK came onto the scene that people stopped wearing hats, wasn't it? Yep. Look what happened to him, so. Well, <laughs> but that'll be a lesson to the rest of us. So it, it really stresses her out that he wasn't wearing a hat. She thinks of it as an intrusion. There's something, you know, very prurient about not wearing a hat. Ooh, I could see all of his hair and everything. So,
0: No, but that that's reading a little bit to me like a woman who's been sexually assaulted and hasn't been able to process it yet. A man who's appeared on her property. He's overly familiar with this sort of, like, naked head. You oh, know, yeah, no, there's certainly you know, a kind of invasive... She eventually recovers from seeing the man. The children are great. She you know, doesn't see this guy on the property anymore. It's all fine. Um, and she says that with the kids, she never grew tired of them and that they contain new things for her to learn every day, which is you know, a really rare situation for a governess. So one night, in the house, she goes to pick up her gloves from the dining room. And this is a little literary tip here. Gloves are almost always seen as an intimate article of clothing, so it's kind of a vulnerable thing, right? She's gonna go pick up her gloves. But it's a
1: paradoxical image as well, isn't it? That it is to do with intimacy and tactility and stuff, but also it
0: mediates that. What? It? because it's worn externally, and yet yeah... It, it covers it. It stops you from feeling things properly. Yes. But- and then she jumps. There's a face in the window looking in, and it's the same man, that same fucker as before, right up against the house, Um, and he stares at her, but she somehow knows that he's not there for her. He's looking for someone else, the children maybe? So she, in this sort of moment of bravery, she runs out of the house to confront him, but when she gets outside where he's standing, he's just gone, We're just I hate this scene, Mm. we're gonna have to smudge this episode with Sage when we're done, and so as she's standing there looking around for this guy, Mrs. Groves comes in the dining room looking for her and she jumps when she sees the governess now staring at the window where the guy had once been standing, so...
1: She's taken its place. Yeah, she's and she's not even wearing a hat, isn't she? Don't they talk about that? Yeah. They're like, I
0: can't believe you're not wearing a hat. Yeah, exactly.
1: <sighs> Our governess, she explains the situation. There was a prowler on the property. Mrs. Gros asks, What kind of man did you see through the window? All the governess can manage is a horror. And almost by way of explanation, He has no hat. Yeah. I mean, what more horrifying thing can there be? Um, Maybe a hat with no body. That's just a hat. (laughs) That's not scary. Finally, she's able to describe him. A redhead. Dark eyebrows. Sharp eyes. You know, you could cut yourself on him. Queer whiskers. Queer Queer reading. reading. Yeah, Uh, Remarkably handsome. In nice clothes that she suspects aren't his own you know, and so on. So he's distinctive. He's- he's- he's distinctive alright.
0: This is like a crappy, like, 30s crime thing, where it's like, he had a gold tooth and an eye <laughs> patch! Like, just yes. really, like, the most distinctive looking guy. Yes.
1: Mrs. Grose, is I don't- I don't want to mince words here, listeners. She loses her shit. Uh, it sounds exactly like Peter Quint. Who? Peter Quint. Who? Peter Quint. <laughs>
0: Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was pulling a U there.
1: <laughs> I like that sort of thing. The master's a valet. You know, valet parking? He did that.
0: <laughs> Sh- shut up. <laughs> <laughs> <You> know,
1: brass- <laughs> polishing the old uh, kettles and things. I don't know. That's what valets do, isn't it?
0: No, valets are... Uh, uh, gentlemen. Gentlemen. Gentlemen, yeah. What, we're... yeah
1: they're polishing... I, and James the... In James and Worcester, he's doing it all the time.
0: No, a valet is strictly uh, carrying the guy's cases, packing his stuff, dressing him, basically tending to his clothing.
1: Ah, alright. Just
0: organizing. It's basically like a PA and a, like, a stylist.
1: Right, sounds pretty good.
0: What, that you would want to be one or have one?
1: Both, I think. You know how psychoanalysts are always undergoing (laughs) psychoanalysis? I want to be one of those valets that has a valet. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh... In ancient Aztec times,
0: can't wait to see where this is going.
1: Um, they had slavery, but their practice of slavery was like a kind of debt peonage thing. And sometimes you would be the slave of somebody who was the slave of somebody who was slave to your slave. So I want to be in a sort of similar kind of valet, circle <laughs> joke?
0: <laughs> oh shut up silly bollocks, we've got lots <laughs> to get through. Okay.
1: Last year, when the master went to London, he left the valet here with Mrs. Grose and the children. Along with us, in charge, Mrs. Grose says. Creepy, isn't it?" That's <laughs> cool. What's he doing? So, the governess is like...
0: Where's he now?
1: He went to.
0: Went where?
1: He died.
0: Oh, for God's sake. Things were going so well for her a little bit. Like... She can't live, laugh, love under these conditions. No. You had a quotation you wanted to read here.
1: It took, of course, more than that particular passage to place us together in presence, of what we had now to live with as we could, my dreadful liability to impressions of the order so vividly exemplified, and my companion's knowledge henceforth, a knowledge half consternation and half compassion of that liability. What the f*** does that mean?
0: I don't know, Daniel. She's been huffing glue or something. Yeah, it reads
1: like that, doesn't That's it? That's an the- obscure hurt for you right now. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, okay, the guy at the window, the guy who's so distinctive looking with his, you know, whiskers and his red hair and his clothes and his handsomeness, he's apparently the dead valet. Right, so the governess is very distressed by this, knowing that she has just seen a f***ing ghost. So Mrs. Grose says that while she didn't see anything herself, you know, she didn't see this guy lurking around the property, she believes the governess. And weirdly, the governess knows in her heart that Peter Quint was looking for miles. She is absolutely losing it. Her itness... It's lost, yeah. but she and Mrs. Grows agree to team up and do everything they can to save the children.
1: <laughs> okay. What? It's just funny, isn't it? Just, oh, we got our best minds on this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> However, the governess does think it's a bit weird that these children never, ever talk about Peter Quint or the former governess, despite them having spent quite a bit of time with them and despite Miles having been especially close to this Peter Quint character. Mrs. Grows says...
1: It was Quint's own fancy to play with him. I mean, to spoil him. Quint was much too
0: free. Ooh, what does that mean? Does that mean class-wise, like a a lower-class valet should not be
1: chumming up with a chumming
0: up with the wealthy children, or too free, like in In kind of in a sex way? Missus Groves knows something, but she won't say. Um, But she implies that, like whatever was going on when Peter Quint was at the house. She couldn't do anything yet. The master didn't want to know about any complaints, and Quint was, quote, so clever. So this is the first hint we have that he might have been molesting Miles, but it's, it's kind of unclear. So just, like, not all men, but definitely this f***ing guy.
1: Hey, Definitely is against the spirit of this story <laughs> and of the whole Henry James project. <laughs> Our governess character finally asks how Peter Quint died. It was apparently from a drunken fall on an icy slope, but you know, sing along if you know. It's ambiguous. It's a bit like what? What's that? That depends what the de- your definition of it is. Is <laughs> this is Bill Clinton the, the ghost story, <laughs> isn't it? Um, so, her goal is to protect protect the kids at all costs. She's out walking with Flora by the lake one day when all of a sudden the governess she feels a bit like she's being watched from the other bank.
0: Or was it a ghost going, need Boathouse?
1: No. She doesn't see anyone, but knows that they're being watched. This is some pretty watertight proof, is it? <laughs> Worst of all, Flora, who had been playing noisily, gets very still. And then, after a moment, she goes back to playing, almost as if she'd been instructed to act normal. Ooh, Ooh that's creepy. A kid plays. A kid briefly stops playing. A kid carries on. That ain't right. Uh, That's I shouldn't put it mark my words.
0: Come on. she worded it so much more with a kid noisily playing and then a kid getting very still and sort of looking around. And then they like
1: <laughs> You know, like with a little hoop.
0: I think this scene is so creepy. I'm not a religious person, but I would like to end this scene on a prayer. Can we do that? Yeah, let's do
1: that right now. Okay.
0: So when the governess gets back home, she freaks out to Mrs. Groves as per usual, but she can't really articulate what happened. Mrs. Groves asks for clarification. Flora saw who? Peter Quint? No, the governess says, her, Miss Jessel so great peter quint is clearly bringing in more ghosts in a sort of parasite style situation so mrs gross finally says that peter quint and miss jessel were quote both infamous by which she means they were having an affair and it's especially bad because miss jessel was actually a lady and peter quint was a low common type he wasn't no lady isn't that always the way just the 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 hot dirt bag mrs gross says
1: I've never seen one like him. He did what he wished.
0: With her? With them all. Ooh. So basically, Peter Quint loves two things, ordering people around and being a sexual pervert. If he lived today, his Siri would be the first Siri that was made to cry.
1: <laughs> all right. <laughs>
0: So the governess asks again. That's quite scary too.
1: Isn't it? <laughs> Imagine that if you couldn't stop it crying as well. That's terrifying. <laughs> That's a good ghost story for you. Mrs. Groves slowly opens up about what it was like living with Quint and Jessel. Quint, very inappropriately for a valet, took Miles under his wing as though he were the boy's tutor. What was he teaching him? They spent a lot of hours alone together. Did Miles know what was going on between Quint and Jessel? Did he see something inappropriate? Is that why Mrs. Groves turned pale when she heard Miles had been kicked out of school? Mrs. Groves gets teary and says she doesn't know. She clearly thinks something happened to the kids, but she wasn't allowed to say anything at the time. Miss Jessel was in charge, but really Peter Quint was in charge of her.
0: So you remember Mr. B from Pamela, And you remember Alec Durberville from Tess of the Durbervilles. Peter Quint is like the stock cube version of those two guys. (laughs) He's the distilled essence of abuser. So the governess waits for days after this for something else to happen. But all is quiet, all is well. In fact, everything is perfect, which might be almost creepier. The kids are super adorable. Flora idolizes her big brother. And again, we have a lot of women idolizing men in this. So the governess idolizes the sexy London uncle, and Miss Jessel idolizes Peter Quint, right? So we have very established gender dynamics. Because it should be. Are you waiting for me to idolize you? Because you're going to be waiting a long time. But then the governess starts to notice that the children's perfect harmony might have a little bit of a dark side. She sees them exchanging looks at each other, and she starts to figure out that one of the, they're getting into this habit where one of them keeps her occupied and the other one slips off <laughs> somewhere unnoticed. Ooh, they're doing their secrets. Yeah, do like that. So one night while she's in bed, the governess senses something astir in the house. She goes out alone in her nightgown with a candle. So this is the 19th century equivalent of a lone girl in a horror movie going around in her underwear going, Hello? Hello? And so on the stairs, the governess comes face to face with the ghost of Peter Quint. So they both kind of stop in horror. They eyeball each other for a while. She stands her ground with a real "fuck you and the horse you rode in on energy. This is my house. And he's like, don't threaten me. I do not have time to jerk off to it. And then he disappears. I'm sort of narrating here. Yeah, that's, a, yeah. that's also not my Paraphrasing. joke.
1: Paraphrasing. That's,
0: that's not my joke. That's from Succession. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, they're developing this cute little Sam and Diane vibe.
1: She goes back to check on Flora, who she finds wide awake and looking out the window. She thought she saw someone walking on the grounds. But she didn't really. Just kidding. The governess knows Flora is lying. The governess is rattled, finally loses it and grabs Flora really hard, really very hard. Um, Jesus,
0: Mary Poppins with roid rage here. I I get that she's literally a British nanny, but there's no need to be a British nanny uh, about
1: it. Yeah, I'm glad we can laugh about that now. Uh, (laughs) Flora doesn't cry out or wince. Is she possessed and not feeling pain? Or what else has happened to her in the past that means she's used to this kind of violence? good to test to see if a kid's been abused by abusing them and seeing how they respond.
0: That's, That's what I plan yeah, on doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> they both go back to sleep, but the governess wakes up later, still in the middle of the night, and finds Flora gone. She looks outside and in the moonlight sees Flora walking on the lawn with a woman. Worst still, she sees someone else out on the lawn, looking up at her bedroom, or above her bedroom. The person on the lawn is Miles. And he's staring at someone, presumably on the roof, right above where the governess sleeps.
0: Yeah, nothing nothing sus there. No,
1: yeah, pretty weird things going on, methinks.
0: Sus. What what 19-year-old Zoomer am I trying to impress? Do they say that? <laughs> yes. Also, maybe Peter Quinn is just really into architecture. He's up there going, nice gable. <laughs> <It's hard> to... <laughs> yeah. So the governess is like, holy shit, the ghosts are taking the kids. So she runs outside and the ghosts sort of disappear. She brings the kids back in and Miles just kind of walks silently. Finally, when she tucks Miles into bed, she asks, why did you go outside? And he says, quote,
1: Just exactly in order that you should do this. That's how he talks, doesn't he? Think me for a change bad. When I'm bad, I am bad.
0: Then he kisses the governess And she says, quote, he fairly glittered in the gloom. He's a hardcore little bastard.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, that's such a creepy bit. Just him sort of menacingly twinkling in (laughs) the dark. Oh, my God. I love this bit.
1: So she starts to have a little bit of a reappraisal of her little angels and says,
0: They haven't been good. They've only been absent. It has been easy to live with them because they're simply leading a life of their own. They're not mine. They're not ours. They're his, and they're hers.
1: Oh, God, something weird's a She knows that Quinn and Jessa want to get the kids, and purely out of the love of evil. They could have been anything they wanted to be, couldn't they? <laughs> but, but they want to be bad.
0: <laughs> a little Bugsy Malone on the show. This is a little bit like a mom getting jealous when she hears her ex and his new wife are taking the kids to Disney. It has a little bit of that energy.
1: <laughs> um, who's, who's the mom? Governess. Yeah. Because it feels like it goes both ways. Jessup's like yeah, coming back on the scene. but that's
0: what I like about it. So Mrs. Groves finally steps up after all of this shenanigans and she's like, okay, listen, we need to actually do something, not just wring our hands. We gotta get these kids out of the house. Or at the very least, we need to call the uncle to come help us. And the governess is like, what? Contact my secret boyfriend who told me never to address him in public? My classified lover? I would rather die than break our covenant that was made hastily on the floor of his office and then once again on the top of his desk. So she tells Mrs. Groves, no, I will not contact the uncle. And if you try to do it, I'm just going to leave immediately. So there's something very weird going on here. So either the governess is so in love with this uncle that she doesn't want to inconvenience him in any way, even if it's to save the kids, kind of like how Miss Jessel didn't stop Quint. Or she's so in love with him that she kind of can't even bear to see him. Or there might be some sort of assault thing happening here where she's like, No, that's like Mm. my rapist. Please don't get him involved.
1: So, autumn comes. Season of mist and fruitfulness. She's starting to crack under the pressure. Starting?! She shuts herself up in her room even more. She rehearses over and over again what she should say to confront the children and the ghosts. The more she tries to fight the ghosts, the more she becomes a ghost of herself. So she says,
0: What it was least possible to get rid of was the cruel idea that whatever I had seen, Miles and Flora saw more. The governess doesn't know how to break it to him that he's never going back to school. Um, So she tries to press him about, like, what happened there without you know, saying you've been expelled. But Miles gets evasive and then visibly upset. And when she presses him further, then he starts screaming. So she just has to leave the subject alone. So whatever happened at school, it ain't good. Although that is an excellent way to end in any uncomfortable mm-hmm. topic. Yeah. I mean, Uncle Ted starts bringing up politics at Thanksgiving. Just shriek till he stops.
1: Or if you're in the debating society. <laughs> <laughs> That's what you meant.
0: Ding, ding! <laughs> excellent answer! So... Finally, she's like, okay, this is this is really going above, above my pay grade. I'll write to the uncle. But after she writes the letter, she can't bring herself to actually send it. So this is every text to your crush that you write out and delete 50 times and then never end up sending.
1: Miles starts pulling away from her and wanting to be let alone. Taken after his uncle.
0: I was going to say, I already forgot that weird fruit that you were talking about earlier. Meddler. The meddler doesn't fall far from the tree.
1: No, no, it does not. So either he's being like his uncle, or perhaps the governess is suffocating him with all her surveillance and quote unquote care.
0: No, men love to be suffocated. Famously, that's what. Some that's...
1: people get off on that. I don't know. Torian, <laughs> Tory MPs in particular, I think. Uh, so he's growing up. He starts wearing little waistcoats made by his uncle's tailor, and starts calling the governess my dear Flora. Starts growing up before the governess's eyes too. Don't know if she's wearing waistcoats. It doesn't come up. Uh, they repeat a lot that Flora is becoming old from being confronted with seeing Miss Jessel's ghost so much. So there's a kind of weird, like, precocity, isn't there? She's, like, adolescent before being an adolescent. She's like an
0: old woman before even being an adolescent. Oh, the ghosts are doing, like, irony through child development. That's f***ed up. Yeah. So, yeah, so she doesn't trust the kids, even though she loves them and she really wants to protect them. And then one day... Flora goes missing, Mm. and they all track her down at the lake. So she's taken a boat out all by herself and managed somehow to row to the other side. And they talk about how this is an almost impossible feat of strength for a girl so small. So the governess knows, like, she's clearly being possessed. She does not have the physical strength to do this on her own. They find her on the far bank where the governess first saw Miss Jessel, and they're able to bring the little girl out of whatever trance she's in. Just why the hell does Miss Jessel always bring them back to the lake? Is this like a charging station for her? Is this where she docks? Literally, because it's a lake. Yeah, it's just I don't know that this is ever explained. Well, nothing is. (laughs) And all of a sudden Miss Jessel appears to them in the sort of blaze of glory. She's like, I'm ready for my cameo you skim milk bitch. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone is sort of stunned. But Mrs. Gross claims she can't see Mrs. Jessel, and the governess is just getting all hysterical and upsetting Flora. And we don't know if Mrs. Gross is lying to herself, or if she really can't see her.
1: The next day, Flora comes down with a terrible fever. The governess decides she's got to get Flora out of the house immediately, where she'll be safe.
0: So I guess that's a little good news, bad news situation. She might die, but... She'll die safe. Not at home. No.
1: <laughs> uh, she'll send that letter she's drafted to the uncle right away. But where has the letter gone? Someone's stolen it. <gasps> but was it the children? Was it Mrs. Groves? Was it the ghosts? C-
0: can't you just write it again?
1: Regardless, they ship the little girl off to recover from her illness with Mrs. Groves. So. Only Miles and the governess are left in the house, and whoever else is visiting.
0: Oh yeah. I hope you sleep well tonight, governess. Night-night. Yeah, so everything's coming to a head. The governess is left with just Miles. I mean, now's actually kind of the perfect time for Peter Quint sex pest and Miss Jessel to sort of make their moves. You know, very like, now that we're alone, my ghost wife and I saw you across the pond, and we dig your vibe. Mm -hmm. Can we buy you a drink? So anyway, Miles is very casual, very debonair, very relaxed, charming about the whole thing. Damn him! He's a little yeah, he's a little puke. Eventually, the governess persuades him to open up to her. He confesses that he's the one who stole her letter and read it and burned it. She asks him about school. Did, did he steal things there? But all he'll say is that he quote said things to people he liked. And they repeated those things to people they liked. It's all very queerness at boarding school reading. I mean, do we give this the queer reading sound effect?
1: I feel like the moment you say boarding school, (laughs) those (laughs) corks are fine.
0: Maybe maybe with a little ghost energy at the end. So this is all extremely suggestive and sexual in nature. It's very much like he's been molested and is sort of replicating what he learned with his peers. Or maybe he's even being like... Possessed by or guided by the ghost, even away at boarding school. Oh. Just, Miles, shrug off your latency period. Imply you're into the weird stuff. It's a numbers game. All pickup artists know this.
1: <laughs> That's probably where the waistcoat's coming from, too. just dress, dress provocatively.
0: Well, they do say that Peter Quint is dressed, like, above his station in clothes that aren't even his yeah, own. It's
1: called peacocking. <laughs> the governess... Is rapidly unravelling and asks him to spell out exactly what it was he said to the other schoolboys.
0: I mean, uh, I guess, does it count as sexual harassment if nobody understands it?
1: Um. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> Miles turns away from her. It's unclear whether he's about to tell the truth or shut down again like he had been doing, and in a peak of anxiety, she jumps up and hugs him close. At that moment, She feels the presence of a ghost in the room, but can't see it. She asks Miles who's there, As she hugs him hard to protect him. He finally yells,
0: Peter Quint! The governess says, quote, What does he matter now, my own? What will he ever matter? I have you. And then Miles lets out, quote, A cry of a creature hurled over an abyss. She says, quote, I held him. It may be imagined with what a passion, but at the end of a minute, I began to feel what it truly was that I held. We were alone with the quiet day, and his little heart, dispossessed, had stopped. So basically a hug is just a strangle you haven't quite finished yet. Mm. And to this very day, Daniel, you can still hear the ghost of Peter Quint molesting all the other ghosts. The end. (laughs) (laughs) should we do some casting
1: yes please
0: this is a Stanley Kubrick film I think you've got to give this the full shining treatment late 60s or early 70s give me Mia Farrow for the governess she's just that sort of tremulous pale creature Andy McDowell as Peter Quint
1: Malcolm, Malcolm McDowell, Andy McDowell. There's a different person. Would be also quite a <laughs> choice. <issues.
0: laughs> Sorry, Malcolm McDowell as Peter Quinn. You've got to keep that in there. <laughs> I might well do. <laughs> and I want those fucking chitty chitty bang bang kids for Miles and Flora. I hate those fucking kids. There is nothing scarier to me than blonde British children singing. I hate them, and I want them for this role.
1: Isn't there a film from this period? There is the one. Innocence. Uh, it's, it's
0: earlier. And it's a really good film. I haven't seen it. Um, it. No, it's very good, but I don't think it captures the quite the nastiness and the sexuality, because it is still 62, so it's oh. still a little...
1: I think what I'm thinking of. really plays up the sex stuff.
0: Uh, I want it played up more. Okay. And now for our segment, Bad Goodreads Reviews. Ridiculous vexations and over-dramatization. And ghostism. How does she know the spookies are bad without ever trying to communicate with them? One star. Ghostism. Spookies. The spookies. The man child Miles was creepy. His sister was kind of a bitch. One star. A, it's an eight year old girl who's done nothing wrong. The whole book. Why? Where's all the smoke for Flora coming? And then. I'm not even sure what the fuck Flora was doing. One star. Yeah, Again!
1: I, think I might have written that.
0: What's, but what's all this heat for Flora? She's done nothing wrong. Miles' is trash ass is over there orchestrating shit, and Flora's catching all the shrapnel for it. Anyway, thanks, guys. Helpful. Did you like it?
1: Sort of, yeah. I'm not really a big ghost story guy.
0: That's a shame. I thought it was a graveyard smash. So, Daniel, we need to address the ending first. Did the governess kill Miles in some sort of manic episode by hugging him too hard? Did the boy die of fright at the ghost? Did Peter Quint kill him before the boy could confess something? Uh, Or did his beginnings of confession loosen Peter Quint's hold on him, which then caused him to die somehow? These are all critical readings of the text.
1: There's a long history of critics trying to pin down one interpretation over another. You know, like you say, that it was a real ghost story, that it was a hallucination, that the the haunting was metaphorical, that it was like trauma or something. Different critics are like, oh, well, how could Flora have roamed that boat? You know, there's evidence there that it must be supernatural. But I feel like the whole point is that this is an exercise in ambiguity and that we don't know what happened at the end and we don't know what's happening throughout.
0: I mean, I know, especially for when you sort of study at high school or even undergraduate level, I think students really like to be told that, like, this is what happened. X means Y. You know, this metaphor means this, or this is how. Like, this is what the book means. And James is trying to undo that. Yeah. You. There is not enough evidence for anything one way or the other. Or rather, there's plenty of evidence for all of them and more. Yeah.
1: That's why he's writing a ghost story, isn't it? Yeah. The next period in his career, he's developing this this new sort of more kind of ambiguous style. Mm -hmm. And he's, you know, a ghost story is a good place to trot that out because you can. You don't need to focusing on social Mm -hmm. realities, you can just be like, you know, did it happen or didn't it happen? Both, you know.
0: But this is also, I think this is a really good tool for exercising your sort of your analytical brain. So what happened? Okay, dig up as many readings as you can, try to find evidence for them. And the more readings and the more evidence you have, that just enriches the text for you, rather than yeah. being like a one definitive. This is what it means. It's
1: a bit like a raw shark test or something, isn't it?
0: Yeah, and but just like collect them all, look at it from different angles and different perspectives. Or like or... Pokemon, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to talk a little bit about the governess as a Victorian figure. Yes, please. Because she crops up a lot in literature from basically the start of the nineteenth century all the way through. Give us a few. So we have Jane Eyre, we have Vanity Fair, um, Becky we, Sharp. Yeah, Becky Sharp. We have this governess is obviously one of the more famous ones. We have What's Her Face from The Importance of Being Earnest, Miss Prism, oh,
1: who wrote the awful three-volume novel. Yes,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of ambiguity and uncertainty about governesses. Like both ghosts and governesses have this sort of half-life, and that's because she's neither a servant. Nor is she quite a guest of the house, so she falls into this weird liminal space. And, you know, she's a character who is very often used in horror fiction because she's either used as like a jailer for her ward, so sometimes you have the really oppressive governess, or because the governess has a tendency to like be exploited a lot. Like Mm -hmm. in real life, governesses were often in these hugely isolated houses they were sexually exploited by the man of the house or by other male servants you're not allowed to get too friendly with the other servants you can't get too friendly with the family that
1: isolation is important yeah.
0: yeah what about the punctuation which is very strange in oh, this novel
1: yeah. jesus yeah
0: i've really liked this so for, for a book that's only 125 pages long there are apparently more than 600 dashes in this yeah and I think a lot of people find that annoying, but I'm like use that use that to form your analysis because here everyone is constantly getting cut off and interrupted. The dashes come sometimes come into stand for things that are unsayable. Yeah. I can't I can't even get the words out, no, so there's yeah, a dash. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting that just how many there are. No, it's
1: crazy, isn't it? That's why in The Cage is good as well because that's that came out the same year and like obviously dots and dashes or what tele- oh. telegraphists live on don't they so there's a kind of the dash has meaning in itself
0: i really like that reading
1: but also i think an important thing about this is, this is some technical terminology for everyone parataxis and hypertaxis okay uh, so hypertaxis is like normal prose so you have like sentences that have clauses and subclauses that have a kind of hierarchy so you know like i went to the shop it being raining or a coat, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like you can tell which are the key important elements mm-hmm. there. Parataxis is when you have phrases and words next to each other that are sort of like equal, and they have no kind of bearing on each other. Mm-hmm. Like more like in poetry. James uses that all the time, and the dashes lend themselves to that. that mm-hmm. you kind of like, there's no sort of hierarchy between clauses. It's just like blah 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 dash blah blah blah, and you're like, well, what's the first part got to do with the second part? Yeah. which is the most important piece of information here, which isn't, and that's a real modernistic device isn't yeah. it? to have that kind of. Uh, highly aestheticized, highly ambiguous, open to interpretation mm-hmm. way of writing, which I like.
0: Well, it's that idea that, you know, like, she's becoming literally untethered, and the language is evoking that, like, things are not linked yeah. anymore, but we're trying to link them, and she's trying to find meaning, and we're trying to find meaning. Yeah. And can we?
1: Well, exactly. You're right, though, that we're also doing what she's doing. She's, like, mm-hmm. hyper-reading everything into everything, and we're doing the same thing, but with her account. It's cool. Account. Yeah, That's it's really very clever. cool.
0: Yeah, so we talked in our Oedipus episode about vision being incredibly important in books and films. So, who can see what, and who is seen versus who sees what is the audience allowed to see? These are all really important ways of sort of um, picking up how apart power dynamics. Uh, so the gaze is almost always about power, and it usually is with like the person who sees having some sort of power over the person who is seen. Mm. But in this book, it's reversed, kind of. So Peter Quin forces other people to see his ghostly figure. Like c- corruption or yeah, yeah. I mean, contamination. They talk about
1: contamination. Don't they? Well, and also, there's all that stuff about seeing as something that's been separated from knowing. If you know mm-hmm. what I mean, that she can see the children doing things, and she thinks there might be something behind it that she doesn't know. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's a kind of that sense that surveillance isn't the be-all and end-all of control.
0: But also Mrs. Gross refuses to see or admit that she sees. She yeah. she turns her eyes away, and so does the uncle.
1: Uh, the real position of power is not surveillance, but the ability to...
0: Turn it off if yeah. you don't want to, yeah. yeah.
1: Is it worth comparing it to Lolita. These, this series two sexual abuse narratives. We always, we always <laughs> like to have a couple in there, don't we? And they both kind of deal with the theme of solipsism, don't they? So people projecting meaning onto the world and onto other people in ways that could be like, you know, you could construe as abusive or dominating and self-deluding. In Turn as a Screw, that like Humber is sort of divided between Quint, the abuser, mm-hmm. but also with our narrator who is obsessed with like reading things into other people. She's, she's kind of attributing intentions to Miles and Flora Mm -hmm. in the same way that Humbert does does to Lolita. So I kind of thought maybe there's something going on there. I don't know, whatever. Anyway, advice time.
0: It's a good idea to look up other books that make use of similar devices. So I was thinking if you're reading this book and you don't quite know where to start, a really good place would be to do some research on other books about governesses, especially in the 19th century, you will get some huge hits. And you can read those, or read you know what other people have written about those, and you can start building connections between them. So all of your good close readings and analysis are about finding allusions, or about finding you know patterns mm, and things. And yeah. then when those patterns deviate, yes, yeah,
1: exactly, yeah, construct patterns and then break them. Yeah, um, yeah. I've also got some advice. So James was a literary critic as well as a novelist, wasn't he? So I think he's using this ghost story to make us think about how we should read books, and. My big advice is you're not Scooby-Doo. You know, there's no definite conclusion to what happened in a book because nothing happened in a book, because it's not real. So you should always just try and think about how and why an author either tried to cultivate literary ambiguity or to suppress it. The the author can be Scooby-Doo, you can't be. The problem is is that literature does kind of want you to sort of find meaning in it, but there is never any kind of definite conclusion. There's no definite meaning of a text.
0: Yeah, exactly. You're not going to pull the mask off a book and say... It was this the whole time. I mean, maybe at a very surface level, but it, no, there's no one right answer. Yeah, exactly. Well, Daniel, that ends our spooky Halloween stories.
1: You, I was terrified. <laughs> uh, no, I was actually, but different things.
0: Well, I'd like to sort of keep up with a sort of cozy autumnal vibe, even if our next text is not set in the autumn. So the clue to our next episode, this is a, this is a first we're not actually going to be telling you a story next time. Uh? We're going to be telling you 24 mm. stories. <laughs> so it might not be April, but we can still curl up around the fire at the Tabard Inn and have a listen.
1: Woo, what could that be? Who, <laughs> a, who knows?
0: A quick Google will reveal all. Yeah.
1: If you like guffs, tune in next time.
0: Oh, God, Daniel's going to be all about <laughs> fucking f- in the next episode yeah. jesus christ oh, yeah. right so please write into our email or tweet us at smfms_podcast underscore podcast if you have any text recommendations that you would like us to cover please subscribe wherever you listen uh it really helps us out uh we do have a tiktok and an instagram that you can find now and uh from my co-host and myself creepy crawler days
1: Thanks for listening to Save Me From My Shelf. Our music is The Overture to Don Giovanni by Mozart, and cover art is by Catherine Wu. Our thanks to Aston University's Center for Critical Inquiry and to society and culture for funding the startup of this podcast. Contact us at savemefrommyshelf at gmail.com or at smfms underscore podcast on Twitter. And do not... I'm gonna remind you, do not forget to rate, review
0: and subscribe. Do not forget, thank you.